Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, early this year, the iconic CMO Alexander Meyer joined some of his Admar colleagues in the MI3 Audio Edition to talk about how they were managing for the end of third-party cookies before, of course, Google decided to delay their burning for another year or so. Alexander recently finished up with the Iconic for a digital transformation gig at Canada's iconic department store, the Hudson Bay Company, and their digital spinoff called The Bay. Alexander describes it as the oldest new startup in the world. Quite a cute little turn there. We recorded this, by the way, before he left Australia in December because I wanted to capture some parting thoughts given the earlier conversation we had in which he's convinced pretty much all the assumptions and levers which have made digital marketing work for the past 20 years are coming to an end, or at least been radically upended and challenged. To paraphrase Alexander in our previous podcast, things like harvesting digital purchase intent signals from users have peaked, that the future of one-to-one personalization and targeting is far less of a direct future than most imagine, that many businesses had too much reliance for a time on the two big platforms of Facebook and Google, and that while digital sophistication has been the great differentiator for companies over the past two decades, that era too is all but over. Whilst data and technological empowerment, he says, are still a key enabler and ultimately important, they become table stakes. On the converse, creativity, he says, is the next breakout arena. Now, that to me is pretty weird coming from a leading digital marketer who can unpack digital behavior, trends and data faster than a kid with Christmas presents. But that's what he says. So we're going to hear about all that and break it down. Um, enough from me. Let's get into it. Welcome, Alexander. Great to have you on before you bail for the mountains and the Rocky Mountains in Canada, which sounds stunning. And we're going to get to the bottom of this in a sec. But well, right now, actually, let's start with it. What's with Canada and the Bay? It sounds fascinating, but I know little more than that's what you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Paul, for having me. Yeah, Canada. I mean, sometimes you have to make big life decisions. And uh, COVID has taught my family and I that it is worth sometimes to really rethink uh, your priorities in life and review where you're at as a family from a life stage and life cycle point of view. And basically, there are two things that came together with the Bay. They've reached out at a time when I wasn't really interested to necessarily stay in retail. But at the same time, we also weren't sure anymore if we want to stay in Australia after having been locked in for two years, given the distance to our families in Germany and the Netherlands, respectively. So I'm German and I come from Berlin and my wife's Dutch and she's from Amsterdam and our moms live in Berlin and Amsterdam and we haven't seen them for two years and our kids haven't seen their grandmothers for two years. Well, as an aside, I know as I've interrupted your stream there, Alex, but it's fascinating. We might get to it later, but you're actually East Berlin yes. and you were 15 when the Berlin Wall came down. We might get to that, but it's a fascinating little anecdote. Yes, maybe we'll spend a little bit of time later on that. Yeah, I grew up in East Germany on the communist side and have uh, always been very fond of having been old enough to experience both systems intensely, but at the same time also young enough to still make the most of the system that we're in right now. And so, right. yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. We might dabble a little bit into that a bit later, but yes, yeah, sorry, I digressed you. I took you off your path of why Canada? Yeah, no worries. So 
Essentially, when the Bay reached out to me, they were discussing a very brave move that I had not come across before in retail land from uh, older bricks and mortar businesses. And they've basically consciously separated their digital business, the Bay, from the bricks and mortar business of the Hudson's Bay in a way that the digital business is leading brand and IP. Uh, whilst the bricks and mortar business has been set up in a franchise model below that, to really do justice to first and foremost shift the mindset to being online led. And secondly, also to do justice to what the investor community and the consumer behavior equally look at, especially, of course, accelerated by COVID being the big accelerator of trends that we've seen in the world. And the dichotomy that comes out of it is really, you mentioned it shortly, the oldest young startup in the world. Now, I'm a sucker for interesting stories. And this dichotomy comes from the fact that the Hudson's Bay Company is 351 years old. But wow. the new the new digitally-led setup is basically a startup. And so you have a situation where you have a huge brand fundament through the awareness in the market, the top of mind awareness of the company, the way it's ingrained in the DNA of the country is unheard of and something that every startup would dream of. You have a multi-billion dollar business behind it already from the stores and the online. And you get investment because of this brave move to focus the omni-channel approach with an online mindset leading it. But at the same time, it's a startup because they haven't been led online. And now it's about which type of people do you hire? What systems do you need? How do you approach it differently now? Where in the past, online has been the third violin in the orchestra. It's now the first violin or the conductor. And what does that mean? And it's literally startup land. And so it's a blank slate. There's none of this blank has been, slate. Nothing's been landed yet. Nothing has been landed. And from that perspective, for me, this was really sounding like the most exciting retail tech platform opportunity in the world right now. And uh, I've been appointed to become their chief customer officer, which is also a development that I personally am very fond of because what I've seen with pure play marketing, being responsible for sales is that you really represent the customer more than anything and the demand side. And so if retailers in the past have been very much driven from a supply side point of view, being only product-led. This time, day and age, it's really more about being demand-led and the customer understanding the customer lens being predominantly strategically important in a business. And so the role of the chief customer officer for such an exciting seemingly dichotomy-based business of the oldest young startup in the world is very exciting. And then last but not least, but equally important, that bringing us closer to our families with a seven-hour flight from Toronto to Europe versus a 24-hour travel made it, in essence, very exciting, very interesting, and I can't wait to get on the ground and get going. Well, I have to call you an Australian turncoat now, Alexander. That's just <laughs> unacceptable. But no, it sounds like a great move. You know, we've got to be careful not to get down to some rabbit holes because there's some fascinating things here. But one thing that stands out for me and what you've just talked about is this structural separation of the digital business to the retail or the bricks and mortar business. Now, in some cases, the narrative is actually how these two need to connect and be closer together and work together. Yeah. Is there a danger here? You know, it's an off-the-cuff question, but the structural separation, does that work against having the two work together and have for the customer even? No, I think it will work good, and i tell you why. I always say I like big, bold statements sometimes, and one of them is pure play has won the online battle, but Omni with an online mindset lead 
or leadership approach will win the retail war. So to make sure that Omni doesn't just gradually develop out of a bricks and mortar reality where digital has been a channel that is part of the mix, really needs to make sure they are online led from a mindset point of view. And this brings me to another statement that I very much like, which is online is a mindset and not a channel. And so to make sure that a historic business that is really ingrained in certain processes, habits, and cost setups, you know, to really transform that, to do justice to how customers behave nowadays and will even more so in the future, you need to sometimes almost create a sense of friction and a sense of break that allows you to shift the mindset to being online first. And online first here means being customer obsessed under new rules in the 21st century, in essence. And so the idea is that in this new setup, marketing and buying still are responsible for the stores as well. So I'm also looking after the marketing for the stores, but it's online led. So right. the question now is, do I create with a visual merchandise window in mind, or do I create with a video social mobile first mindset? And then thereafter comes the visual merchandise window and how we integrate it and what that means as part of the channel mix. And so the relationship of both the online and the bricks and mortar business is still tight through the way it has been contractually and process oriented set up. But the leadership in essence for the halo of where this whole group is going in the future comes from the digital side of the business. And it's the right thing to do because as I said, I think after, and I say it again, pure play has won the online battle. Omni when led with an online mindset will win the retail war. The reality is it's really trying to make a men's with transformation having taken too long for bricks and mortar businesses in the past. And we can see it in Australia. We can see it with the likes of David Jones and Meyer. We can see it in Germany with the likes of Kaufhof and Karstadt. We can see it with any bricks and mortar business in the world. Everybody superficially would say they're ailing. They're ailing for good reason and they can't refresh quick enough and they don't know what to do with online and online competition. And what you can see now, since the Bay has done this, and it was basically done also by Sachs, which is part of the Hudson's Bay Group out of New York. Sachs has done the same thing a couple of months earlier. Now even Macy's is talking about it. Right. It's becoming a thing. Right. And it's becoming a thing of how do you make sure that you, that you basically transform billion-dollar businesses that are not set up to really compete well in the future and bring them into the future in a way that you basically don't have time to iterate in the steps of online and what online has experienced in the past for the next 10 years, but where you basically have to leapfrog and it requires some brave, bold moves. And this is one. Great stuff. Let's see if we can get some time at the end to talk more about it. But we certainly I'll be hustling and hassling you in six to 12 months and two years to get a catch up on all this. But how about we go retrospective for a moment, Alex? Digital marketing and media, it hasn't turned out like it was supposed to. We've had this conversation before. Recap for us. What happened? It was the promised land. Well, you know, whenever there is a big transformation happening in society for whatever reason of efficiency developments or innovation that changes behavior or enables a different type of behavior, politics and society are always slower 
to adapt and merge with what was known than the actual development itself. And so what that means is you have a decade or two or three where you have a bit of a Wild West. And, you know, you can see it now with things like crypto and NFT. That's the new Wild West of what the Internet was in the late 90s and early 2000s. And in the same way that the Internet had its dot-com crash in the early 2000s, we will see probably something like that happen for the crypto and NFT world at some point as well. And if you think about market adjustments, they come quicker than political decisions or subsequently regulatory decisions. And so, in essence, the tsunami of technological development was just too quick for society to understand it well enough and to see what it might do well enough and to see how to merge it with what we've known well enough for the benefit of all parties involved. And so what happens is you have several different type of developments coming together at the same time. And one of them, which I find very interesting, especially if you look at the old examples of the music industry, such as Napster, you know, Napster happened, people sharing music files, all that the old big five majors came up with was legal cases against new consumer behavior, instead of seeing the sign of the time and developing new business models. And that's a very, very typical example of the old versus the new, the David against the Goliath, and the stories that hold true for any technological development. But that's just one little example. The other example is that all of a sudden you have maybe situations and issues that you have never thought of before in society, privacy issues, or how you, through ad-enabled targeting, foster tribalism in society that no one was aware of very quickly. And so potentially tech uh, doing something bad for the connectivity of our social fabric as a whole, you know? And so then you have situations where all of a sudden, in the specific instance of digital media and traditional media and the Gary V's of this world against the Mark Ritsons of this world and the social versus TV and how you build brands and what's the right thing to do and where you spend your money. And, you know, young startups doing it very different from all traditional businesses who kind of, you know, see digital media as a little side gig. There's a big learning curve involved for everyone. And... There are situations where one wins over the other, but then again, context still matters. And so it's getting just complex. Mm. And it's the complex territory, though, that is the one that is exciting, because that's where you can really dissect the, how do you say that in English, the crop from the... Oh, uh, the wheat from the chaff? Yeah, whatever that is. But <laughs> So Alex, what's your hunch on how many marketers, digital marketers, companies, pure plays and omni-channel or bricks and mortar and beyond, how many in the market industry uh, sort of sense or agree with what your position is, this big overhaul coming and there's big challenges to what they've been doing? Is it widespread at the moment, the understanding, the acceptance of that yet, or is it still coming? I think, first of all, it would be probably important to dissect when you basically talk about you know, the big change that is coming, we're basically talking about probably two different types of changes and two different types of challenges for different types of companies. The first one is there still is this big upheaval coming about this generational change and customer behavior really 
making sure that people who have not understood the signs of the times will not survive from a business perspective, in essence. That's a change where still a lot of people have to, and businesses especially, have to catch up on. That's one big change still coming. I think at the in the year 2024, we'll get to the point where the new generations of Y, Z, X make up a bigger proportion of society and spend in society than the pre-boomers, boomers, and millennials. And there is a big transformation coming that is, as we said before, accelerated by COVID, that is still on the roll that will just, it's a tsunami that is just a wave that is not stopping anywhere. And a lot of people will, will still have to go through that kind of change. Right. But then there is the other change, which is digital marketing has been good to us with all these new business models in this Wild West time, where you could really exploit the opportunity to target in a way that you were never able to before and harvest purchase intent through signals that you get online. And Just I think, for those that may not be as savvy as you in terms of the terminology then, when you talk about harvesting digital signals, it's basically harvesting consumer behavior that points to an interest in a category or a product or a service, correct? That's what we're talking about? Exactly. So somebody is searching for a red dress online and you make sure you are there when that search result pops up. You know, that if you are a big business and you bid with paid performance on many keywords, but you're also ranking through SEO in many keywords, that you're in the top 10, ideally in the top three. You know, if you're a big business, ideally you have 100,000 keywords appear in the top 10 in organic search, as an example. That is harvesting purchase intent, knowing how to get to showing up when people show interest mm. and being there basically in their face or on their screen. Got and it. that's what I mean with harvesting purchase intent. And, you know, of course, it goes deeper than that with lookalike audiences and basically not just guessing, but targeting based on interests people show through Facebook likes or the groups they join or the behaviors they show and companies like Facebook providing lookalike audiences that you can target audience that are most likely to be interested in something. It becomes less of a spray to everyone the same. It's a targeted opportunity that the digital media world brought to life in a way that we've never known it before. And that also will be and is being challenged. You know, Apple in their positioning of being more of a privacy-based company and what is labeled as IDFA, where the unique identifiers are not being able to be used anymore to work with on a one-to-one -one basis like that was in the past, or the cookie crumbling from Google, you get into a situation where that direct targeting is not as easy anymore or impossible, basically. And the fundamentals here, Alex, is that that has been challenged because there is an awareness around consumer data protection and privacy and consent and a lot of things. You talk about the Wild West, digital marketing did a lot of things that people didn't actually know what was going on. And if they possibly did and had the right to say no thanks, they may have said no thanks, but that wasn't there. This is why these challenges are happening now. 20 years of good, you know, solid targeting and profiling yeah. is shifting up because of the regulatory environment. And ironically, the customer. <laughs> yes, and that's where it's coming from the other side as well. It's not just from company against company changing how the rules are. Google wanting to get rid of the cookie and Apple of the device identifiers, but also the regulatory overhaul, looking at what's happening to society. And one aspect is pure consumer rights. 
and privacy rights, and you always need certain tipping points to get to that takes a decade or two to be recognized as important, but then also what it does to society at large, which we see in the division of society and how these business models and the algorithms work in essence. And so with both of these things happening, um, the digital era of the easy success of an online pure play business model that not only disrupts old business models and old thinking and allows customers to get what they want, when they want it and how they want it and so on and so forth, and subsequently being able to report and target and steer towards that, I think is coming to an end in the way that we know it. It doesn't mean that data and tech are less important. They're probably more important than ever. That's not going away. The point just is that first of all, they become table stakes because if you haven't seen the light and if you haven't invested into a first party data strategy and are clearly on the road for that, you don't have an opportunity to win anymore, but it becomes table stakes. And so the question now is, how do you handle that complexity? And how do you make sure as a business that you really focus on the right strategy, have the right data and tech enablement in place, and then focus on where it really matters, which is your creative output and the way of how you communicate to customers. So what does that look like? You know, if we go back to the conversation we had earlier in the year was all driven around how during your time at the Iconic, you and the Iconic saw some of this cookie apocalypse stuff coming and were preparing for it, you know, two or three years ago, I think, if I recall correctly, if I've misrepresented that, you know, correct it. But you saw some of this stuff, the Iconic saw some of the stuff, and we're starting to prepare to change things up, including, you know, off the back of what you talked about, that harvesting digital signals and targeting, you suddenly had a sort of a, an enlightening view, which was that actually, as a digital marketer, we still got to think about brand. And what do we do about that in the equation of just not being a performance-led online pure play retailer chasing people when they say, I want a red dress. I haven't actually done a search on a red dress, but let's say blue shoes, you know, someone's there. So just maybe contextualize what you were doing at the Iconic to brace for this cookie change, which by the way, caught most people off guard. It was suddenly a stampede of, holy shit, we've got to work this stuff out. You seem to have had a little bit of a, your eye earlier on this. Well, I think it's potentially worth starting with Jim Collins and his books of Good to Great and Great by Choice. Our CEO at the time, Patrick Schmidt, really resembles a phenomena that Jim Collins speaks about, which is productive paranoia, which is to really think about what is it that will come as a surprise to your business that is not good to be caught by. And one of those things always is being over-dependent on a media channel, on a revenue stream, on a category, on a a platform, no matter where you look at, over-dependence is never healthy. I mean, you know, every, not only Tony Robbins, but every other financial advisor would tell you, you need to diversify. And so thinking about productive paranoia and how we looked at the future through the lens of how companies become great and stay great, inspired by Jim Collins as an executive team, we really reviewed the entire business and thought about where do we need more oxygen in the tanks? Where do we need to run more tests, bullets versus cannonballs, as he calls it? Where do we need to be worried about overdependence? What are company risks? And so on and so forth. And it was really that, I would say, on one hand, combined executive conversation and the inspiration of Jim Collins that made a difference there. But on the flip side, specifically on the marketing side for myself, I come from 
originally long-standing successful consumer brands such as Adidas and Vance and my own professional background. And I've seen the power of brand firsthand and lived it and helped formulate it and shape it within my context of those businesses. And, you know, those companies are very old and very successful for a very long time. And even today, when there are big commercial businesses that you can find basically anywhere in their marketing, they always focus on brand as a starting point. And, you know... Well, Adidas had a detour for a while, though, didn't it, Alex? They had a detour for a while, but at the end, they always come back to brand principles, values from founders that make all the difference of the world. And the reality is, when you are in an online pure player that is a startup and young, when I joined the Iconic, was maybe four years old. And now I'm leaving it being 10 years old and have helped it from, you know, just over 100 million to becoming almost a billion dollar business. You get to a reality where you can see the bigger you get, the less you can depend on just one type of marketing or one type of platform or one type of approach. And so those were just two things coming together in my mind. You know, if I look at the set of things that we did over the years, and if I reflect on it backwards now, to go back to the start of our conversation, the fact that I grew up in East Germany and then, you know, socialized in my adolescence or my adult years in West Germany or the new reunified Germany, which was very much operating like West Germany and the Western world, made me realize you get to the same results through different angles or to speak in the old wisdom, all paths lead to Rome. Right. And there is value to look at the other angle, because if you see both angles, you can create something much more meaningful, potentially. And so I'm always somebody that naturally looks at and embraces complexity and to speak almost spiritually, the koans of life, these dichotomies that seemingly don't come together well. And it is those spaces where you grow the most and where you can find most success. So for example, I really love the idea of being comfortable in the uncomfortable or in the unknown. I want my team to be not homogeneous, but very diverse. I want different thinking styles in the team. I'm a big believer you need to really diversify your approach and you need to, of course, start with the right strategy. So at the end of the day, it was very obvious that we need to work simultaneously on our data approach, on our purpose and brand fundament approach, on our creativity for always on creativity and campaigns above the line. We need to review how we go about paid performance. We need to not only look at new customer acquisition, but also look at reactivation and loyalty of returning customers at the same time. So how do you bridge that complexity? Well, first of all, you need to, in the back end, make sure that you can stitch data well together and you need to good uh, first party data, single customer view strategy in place and the respective tools. So we built a customer data platform and that later enabled us through APIs to connect with each marketing channel and activate segments into each channel from the same platform. It also allowed us, if we have predictive customer lifetime value algorithms, to feed it into one platform and make use of it for the activation in all channels. That allowed us to then, on the flip side, go a lot more up in the funnel at the same time because it was possible for us to automate a lot more and scale a lot more on the paid performance side and have more resource and mental capacity to go up in the funnel at the same time. So if you want to work on the front end and power a good back end, if you want to work on good acquisition, know how you keep people for loyalty at the same time. 
So what I'm basically saying, my key message is here that I'm always trying to drive for looking at the front end, the back end as well, at all cohorts at the same time, so that you can, in essence, make sure you don't just optimize orders by channels, but lifetime value by cohort, whilst also building a cult brand, to say it in cliche words, in essence. So let me ask, you know, when you talked about not being too reliant on anything in the context of good to great and so forth, how reliant was the iconic, say, on two platforms, Facebook and Google at some point? There's obviously a flashpoint where you went, this is getting too close to reliance. Yeah. So in the history of the iconic, I would say the biggest reliance initially was on organic search. So really focused, good SEO work and then paid performance targeting mainly through Google and Facebook, social and search, but really these two platforms. Through display, open exchange networks, is that what you're talking about? So basically Google, Facebook and display networks. It's, it's right. in essence these three because we didn't do much display through Google in the initial days, rather with platforms like Critio and, and so on and so forth. Got it. But for example, one of the things we did, we uh, very early in the exchange between our CEO... Alex, I have to ask, did you cookie bomb then? We did. You did? We did. Right, and it worked. And it worked. And it worked even though it was seemingly annoying for people. And in the thought exchange between our CEO, Patrick, and myself... We both originally didn't come from paid performance. And I always looked at paid performance as the out of home of the digital landscape. So if I would imagine every out of home poster speaks to me about a product and a price, I would be totally annoyed. You know, it, like I don't want to see that on the street all the time following me just because the computer screen seems like an external thing that I can shut on and off. You know, we have to look at it that way. And so I went to this conference with Critio for Southeast Asia and Vietnam. And I spoke to one of their product SVPs and said, so tell me, how can I bring a love message to consumers and just tell them that they're great through Critio display ads? Like where or how do I activate that in the right way? And they were quite stunned by that question. And we had long discussions around how do you use display in a completely different way and not just to follow somebody with a price and product. We should explain for those that are saying, what the hell is cookie bombing? And you may give it a better definition than I, but it's essentially where companies and intermediaries literally drop um, code on a whole bunch of users and basically retarget them and hassle with ads saying buy whatever sort of inferenced product they may have looked at. That's sort of essentially in a nutshell. But Exactly. And the thing is, what is, of course, not nice about the fact that most people don't understand it, well, consumers, regulatory parties as well is that it's not like a conscious effort for me to target you specifically and I'm really following you. It is basically a scalable business model that is tech-empowered where I don't even feel the relationship to the consumer as a business. So it's basically not like I'm following Paul specifically because I have the people and the resources to drop all these ads on them. It often is literally, okay, Ah, there is a new business model. Ah, there are lookalike audiences. Ah, there is this capability because our business is connected with cookies of these tags through these websites and Facebook X and Google that. 
we can give you as a business the self-serve tool that you can place some creatives and the machine will find itself whom to target. Don't worry about it. Here are the cost per clicks. And so it becomes a very non-personable reality where then naturally as a business person that sits on the backside of that technology, you don't even feel the negative impact. You just don't see that because it's basically a funnel that you just feed a picture and information in automated ways even where the system often puts the headlines on the picture itself into a machine, not knowing where it lands in essence. It just seems to land because some attribution yes. model tells you it works and, and the dollars seem reasonable. And in your budget process with your leaders, you were given X amount of budget to also drive sales through this kind of marketing activity, you know? Right. And ironically, that's the antithesis of what digital said, which is personalization of one-to-one. This is old school media broadcast spray and pray almost. It was massive volumes and it's super cheap reach. Super cheap reach is a critical. Yes, super cheap reach, except the difference to the old school broadcast spray is that it is being targeted, but it's mainly by a machine that you don't see. Right. And by a connectivity of points that are driven by cookies that you don't see. And so it's not personal from a relationship point of view, but it's personal because it is much more relevant to you as a consumer than it would have been in the past. Because all of a sudden you don't just see the Marlboro Man ad that is everywhere and out of home posters in the 80s before it was forbidden or a certain TV that everybody sees the same. No, you see product that you might have searched for or you see relevant categories that you might have searched for. You know, that makes it basically more personal from that perspective. I just wanted to get back to these two things. I can see we're going to have to fast track our conversation because it's fascinating, but two things. One is that understanding of the reliance you had on two platforms and that being you needed to diversify. I want to cover that. But also when you talked about harvesting the digital signals, which was essentially at how you wanted to move up the marketing funnel, up the sales funnel, right? So you were talking about how harvesting purchasing signals or digital signals, I should say, is a reactive process, right? It happens and you see a consumer person doing something and you respond. What you were trying to do is get further up the food chain, further up the marketing funnel so that you could actually influence consideration and choice rather than react to something that a person was doing. Have I sort of kind of broadly got that right? Yes, you got that right, but I'll get back to that. So just to your first question, that's also the point where I lost my train of thought. So relatively early, based on this conversation on the annoyance of display ads following everywhere around, we really, in the total mix of spend and our growth, really reduced our dependency on display a couple of years ago, where a lot of other pure play businesses still have 30, 40% of their sales come through it. It became a very small number for us. And we reduced our dependency there. And we really ended up diversifying our activities for more mid-funnel digital activities, you know, driving traffic through articles and inspiration. So content. Content, hosting content on site that we then place via dark posts or just as you know, boosted organic social posts through our network. What do you call a dark post, by the way? A dark post is when it's basically, it appears on your Facebook timeline, but it doesn't appear somewhere else, basically. So let's say okay. I'm writing an article, you don't find it on the website of the Iconic, 
but it will have appeared on your timeline. So it's basically, we write hundreds of articles every month. We don't have a big repository entry point through the Iconic website where you find them back easily, but they have been targeted to come to your timeline in essence, to drive traffic back to the site, but also by doing that through giving inspiration about the latest trends or this or that topic and so on and so forth. And so- So you diversified to mid-funnel content beyond? Mid-funnel content beyond, dabbled in radio, promotional radio, brand radio, some out of home, tested TV, you know, started even in the last year looking at digital, but even print catalogs again, but in a very cool way with QR codes and shoppable product links. We, in essence, just becoming bigger realized we can't rely anymore only on new customer acquisition if we have, so to speak, touched every Australian in some way, shape or form that has shopped fashion online already, and we now have to convert the unconverted, if you will, that it's important for us to reactivate people that don't shop with us anymore because of maybe they're having had a bad experience or just having not been interested in shopping online so often, how we reactivate them and to keep people loyal from churning and not shopping anymore. And so becoming bigger, you naturally realize you not only need to go up in the funnel, you need to diversify your channel mix naturally. But linking it back to the topic of how digital marketing is changing. Can I ask you before that, though, did you get any surprises in what channels worked that you didn't expect to or you hadn't tried before? Was there any change in your testing? Sorry, anything in the testing that, that said, oh, shit, well, no, maybe you didn't yep. do that. You don't, you're yep. a well-spoken man, but OG, that worked. Was there anything in the channel mix that changed and went, oh, there's a surprise? By the way, they say people who swear are more geniuses. So I like swearing. <laughs> shit, yeah. <laughs> no, if, 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 you know, if it's uh, just to make a point and not direct it at someone, then I think it's a, a valuable communication tool. So I say shit too, but right. yes, we learned a lot. A couple of things we learned is you cannot be lazy with out of home. Just to put some product in a nice tagline on out of home will not do anything for you. What we also learned is branded radio doesn't work well for us at all, but promotional radio works really well. So radio, I mean, Australia knows the Harvey Norman radio ads that shit works. That's why they're still doing it. It also worked for us. Nice. Um, but branded radio, just with interesting messages, didn't work. That didn't do anything, at least not what we've seen. But it didn't do anything in terms of driving traffic to your website to get a purchase? What were you looking for out of a branded radio spot? Well, the point is a branded radio spot will potentially work on certain brand metrics, but we didn't test those in a way that they would be meaningful for us because we didn't know how to stitch it back to all the metrics that are relevant for us as a retailer. Mm -hmm. And being a retailer is, of course, also very different from being a brand with its own product in itself because you represent many brands in many categories. You're a middleman, in essence, naturally a low-margin business of sorts in comparison to selling your own product and your own brand. And so we didn't see any benefit to any metric that is relevant for us. Now, I would probably argue it has its benefit from a multiplicatory effect when you do branded campaigns overall, but we didn't have the money to really go all in on all channels with one or two messages alone. And right. so representing different categories that launch, representing big brands that launch, representing certain sell-through needs that we have here or there on certain categories just makes it very 
complex, dissected and minuscule for a retailer. And you need to really think about what, what impact that you can measure more in the short to midterm. Do you want to drive? So, but we saw, by the way, with TV, some TV ads worked well for us and some didn't. And so we did geo incrementality testing where we looked at an area that is comparable to another area from a consumer behavior point of view and the signals that you normally get from those areas and ran TV in one and not in the other and saw a big uplift in new customer acquisition, for example. And mm. so one of the biggest learnings probably for me in the last two years is, again, a funny dichotomy, seemingly existing dichotomy, but if you think about it, it's actually not, which is a lot of your above the line helps acquisition and conversion and a lot of the digital helps in awareness and consideration. Hmm. Right. Even though we always thought digital is just conversion, lower funnel, and above the line is just upper funnel and brand metrics. And so that's not the truth. And it's not enough. And it's not good enough to think about it that way. Because in our geo-incrementality testing, we then saw is that a lot of the people that you need to convert to come online who don't show the signals initially because they're not just naturally open to shopping fashion online, they are all of a sudden interested and convinced because we have a big TV ad. And right. then they do come online and then maybe they are also retargeted and then they convert. But a lot of people who are already online anyways, who don't need a TV ad to be convinced, but only shop dresses with us, they all of a sudden through mid-funnel YouTube ads and, and mid-funnel content work are now realizing, oh, they have a lot of other things. And they all of a sudden become familiar and consider things they wouldn't have considered with the Iconic before, where it was just about harvesting when they already showed interest in certain things. So they spread their repertoire of what they purchased with you. Exactly. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you hear often about how often sort of mainstream and particularly TV, TV ad goes on, you track the time and you can see search results go through the roof. So that's the sort of scenario you're talking yes. about there as yes, a parallel. But beyond it, we basically tested in the areas where we, comparable areas where we ran TV versus the other comparable area where we don't, what's the uplift in sales? What's the impact on the different channels? And how many new customers do we have from a new customer rate? And we actually see that impact being positive. And in some cases, when the TV ad is done well, is almost similar to paid search from a cost income ratio wow. point of view sometimes. So... So then you get into the specifics of, okay, as a retailer and the call to actions from a donut strategy and what kind of message, how do you bring this together? And, you know, we could spend an hour on that. But anyways, we, we diversified on our media mix. We really worked on the back end empowerment and enablement with the first party data strategy and enablement. We really worked on our always on creativity and, and creative output. We tested and learned a lot. And I would say for me, the umbrella under which I frame all of this is really data and brand. And I think one of the key points of differentiation from a table stake perspective, but you need it is your first party data strategy. How do you capture all your data points? So super interesting where I'm going now, Omni. How do you stitch the store data together with the digital data, which is very different because if you think about you go into a department store, you pay with a credit card, what data points do you leave behind versus you log in online and you're subscribed? 
very different data sets. How do you stitch them together? That will be a very interesting question, but one of the most important ones. So how do you work with first party data when you cannot only rely on third party data anymore? And how do you really build your first party data pool? And then on the creativity side of things, together with your product offering, service offering and customer journey based experience that you offer, right. how do you keep people within your walled garden to work well with your first party data, you know? So experience, creativity and product offering that is based on good first party data understanding that enables better experiences is really that, that umbrella of data and brand, data and purpose, data and experience that will make all the difference going forward. Alex, was there nervousness as you moved, as you diversified away from what you had relied on for so long? I remember Stu Tucker at uh, High Pages talked about this oh, probably 18 months, two years ago now on a podcast where basically said, you know, we had to get off the drug of search, paid search, and they went into brand, but everything was so, the business was so tuned to owning the search sort of categories, vertical, that they'd forgotten everything else. Was there any nervousness about you shifting the strategy? There's always nervousness. And that's why it always <laughs> takes so long. That's why when we talk about certain ideas as a business or society, it doesn't just go immediately in the next month or the next quarter or the next year. But that's why it takes two, three, four years to do these things right and make a big difference. Yes, there was nervousness. There was always nervousness because if you think about it, especially in our business at The Iconic, we were very young. There's so many considerations. And then when you go through hyper growth, you're in this constant adjustment of sorts, you know, and it puts a big strain on the teams. And so you constantly need to adjust naturally already because of your hyper growth and because of learning as a business. And then on top of it, consciously changing things because an overdependence doesn't seem right or because it doesn't seem enough anymore for the complexity that you enter based on your business size. It's of course nerve wracking. Uh, there's no question about it. In terms of the creativity angle, this is a really fascinating one, as I sort of said in the setup, that you know, digital marketers suddenly turning to creativity as the differentiator when it's been all about you know, digital capability and sophistication, data and so forth. What the hell are you thinking here about creativity? Let me read you a quote from Lee Clow. Lee Clow was mm. the- TBWA, right? He had yeah. a quote somewhere that I came across one day that said, the art of storytelling the art of the idea is ultimately going to come back after everyone is over this infatuation with the technology that allows us to deliver the ideas. Right. That's what I'm in essence now talking about. And I think that's the world we're in. Now, I personally am naturally a storyteller. I believe everything is a story. And I always look at life in the way that I think your own family setup, your business, your society, your nation state, they're all stories. A stage with actors, heroes, protagonists, antagonists, a plot, aka the thing that happens, and the narrative and the poetic truth of how we go about life and what we make out of it, so to speak. And so once you look at it that way, that everything is a story, you can really focus on trying to find the human truth. And my favorite or one of my favorite writers, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, the Colombian writer who wrote A Love in the Times of the Cholera and 100 Years of Solitude, 
so he said something that goes like this. Life is not what one lived, but what one remembers and how one remembers it in order to recount it. And it speaks to this point of storytelling that everything is a story in essence. And so what are the stories that we're captured by? What are the stories that we think are interesting? They're always connected to some sort of human truth. And I mean, since I'm now at quotes, I give you a third, all good things come in three. I give you a third quote. That's right. William Faulkner, the big modern writer from the US, he said at his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, something along the lines of, every great story ever told is about the human heart and conflict with itself. So here we're going back to this idea of the dichotomy. And this is probably where my history coming from East Germany really played a role as a threat in my life, being an interested in the dichotomy of things and conflict and diversity for the sake of growth and learning and development. That's where the most beautiful stories are being told. And if everything is a story, that's where the most beautiful things are crafted and things come to life. And so I think that it is really important that we come back to telling stories that matter. And I remember in the 90s, when Hollywood ramped up their special effects capabilities, that I often was left after movies with the feeling, hmm, great entertainment, but the story wasn't that great. Whereas older 70s, 60s, 80s movies, I was sucked in a lot more into their stories because they crafted the personalities and the stories and their challenges, aka the human heart and conflict with itself, out a lot more. And so I think we're in a time where through algorithms, technology, automation, robots, what we need to preserve and where humanity will make its biggest difference for itself and for existence as a whole, to almost speak in spiritual terms there, is by carving out the human capability out first and, and foremost in the biggest sense. And what was the big success factor for humanity? It wasn't survival of the fittest and that twist of truth from a Darwinistic evolutionary point of view. It was actually sharing and caring and collaboration that gave us success. And what is that rooted in? In storytelling. Because even before language was born, you know, in simple terms, cavemen, when they didn't have a proper language, they needed to convince others in the group to do this or that with them. And for the group to decide for something to survive as a group, they needed to basically work with pantomime and mimicking and storytelling to convince the group to do something. Well, an art, right? <laughs> they, drew, they drew as well. They drew as well, and they expressed what was important for them at the time. Unfortunately, back then it was really wild animals and nature. Now it's grumpy cat on Facebook, right. <laughs> and that's important to us now. Well, it's a great point because I was going to say you made a critical point earlier. You said you know stories that matter. And now, when you talk about creativity in a brand in a commerce context, you know you can have storytelling, but some of it's absolute shit or irrelevant or light or trite. Stories that matters is a really important distinction, Alex. And can brands do that enough? And is that the sort of creativity you're talking about? Yeah. And this is now entering, of course, a very complex topic of also values, which you would almost need to stay out of because first and foremost, what matters for a marketeer based on the system the marketeer works in and who and what is paying him, what matters is how do you sell a product well? 
So if you go into conversation around what someone like a Mark Ritson proposes is, don't be ashamed to be a marketeer because it's your profession and you have to go about it strategically. Your role is to sell a certain product, not to sell a certain dream of a purpose that doesn't fit to your company. So there are two different topics here when you talk about stories that matter. One is what matters to your business, to your stakeholder, to your customer, to your business or to your role or to your profession. That's one world of what matters. But then there is a what matters for society as a whole, of course. And we can discuss both, but, you know, they're not the same. In essence. No, and they're often in opposition sometimes too. That's a conversation that we have to have at another time because that is you open up a huge, really interesting sort of territory there. Yeah, absolutely. So the creativity, I would love to come back and talk more about that stuff because it's clearly on it's on the agenda, everything you're just talking about there. But the creativity in a nutshell, because the key point here is the distinction that digital capabilities, digital sophistication was a competitive advantage for those that were on it early and were outstripping those that weren't. Now you're saying that's table stakes. Everyone's got to do it. Everyone's doing it to a certain level of sophistication. And now the competitive difference comes through creativity. Now, how you do that is the grand question, which probably requires more conversation, but that's in a nutshell what you're talking about, right? Yes. And I would say there are a lot of different types of things connected to this. So, for example, one of them is the question of in-house creatives or agencies. One is a question of always-on content versus big campaigns. One is brand positioning, let's even say brand purpose versus or with differentiators and questions around that. So, creativity touches on a lot of different types of topics within the... Well, you mentioned it earlier too. Automated, automated creativity is another one, right? So Automated creativity is another one. Exactly. Templatized creativity, so to speak. So I think you have to always bring it back to the human or to say it in the business sense to your customers, your consumers, and what matters to them. And I think for me, creativity touches also on the point of How do you make sure that whatever is important for your brand, who you are as a brand, either from a value or from a strategy point of view, how do you enter these creatively into your moments of truth for your customers? So, for example, when you are a retailer and sustainability is important for you, what's the creative angle to how you bring that to life? Do you just have a landing page that is hard to find in your footer in the about section about the sustainable products you stock? Or do you create a filter that happens to be the first main filter after the gender filter or the category filter to highlight to people they don't need to go out of their way to be able to shop for the sustainable dresses versus the other 90,000 that are maybe not coming from ethical sourcing because you make it easy for them. That for me is creativity as well. So Mm. it's about being customer obsessed, understanding the human that you're trying to you know, work for and work with that you sell products for and that you, in essence, create this understanding in their journey of what are the moments of truth? What are you doing about them? And how do you then creatively bring that to life, so to speak? You know, and that's the cornerstone of it all for me. So you could go to the opposite to what you're talking about, though. Brent Smart at IAG, the CMO at IAG, talked about it yeah. um, in, a, in a story we did, I don't know, a few months back, where he's also got P&L responsibilities lead for a new startup out of NRMA called Rolling. It's an insurance product that's targeting under 40s 
called Roland, and he talked about deliberately inserting friction into the user experience when they're going to buy or search for Roland's car insurance for these under 40s because the templates have become so vanilla. MarTech and customer experience has been so we're obsessed about taking friction out that it gets really boring and he actually wants to make it interesting. But when you make it interesting, sometimes you insert friction into that experience and that's a trade-off that he's prepared to do. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, Adam Ferrier is another one who is a big believer in that, published a whole book about it, Adam Ferrier from Thinkerbell. And uh, he spoke always about the example of Ikea doing the same or 7-Eleven. You know, it's not pleasant to go into a 7-Eleven, cables hanging from the roof, bright light, loud music, annoying, but it makes you shop more and quicker. Going to Ikea, nobody wants to walk through the whole hallway. That's really annoying but it kind of works, even though you were just looking for something else that is only at the end of the journey. Right. And so there is an absolute merit to that type of thinking. And I think more so than ever, that requires really good creative thinking, because if you interrupt the customer journey convenience, you better do it in a way that doesn't really hurt your business. But if you do mm-hmm. that well creatively, then it will benefit you because all of a sudden it becomes really unique and distinct. And that's what it's all about, being distinct and differentiated in the market, of course, in the consumer's mind. And so, yeah, I believe there is a big merit to that thinking because at the end of the day, all companies end up looking the same, having the same types of journeys otherwise. And from that angle point of view, I would agree that creativity is not just a matter of storytelling itself from a pure creative output point of view and the ad and how it looks and feels and sounds or what's happening in an ad. It is also very much about business creativity and how you look at the journeys, how you look at the moments of truth for customers, the micro moments of shopping and how you go to market in essence. So Alex, we are so out of time, but I got to ask you one more thing. And yes, there has to be another edition on this one, but you know, the bigger picture on marketing, you're actually upbeat about it saving the world. Now, many will choke on that one. I did when I first heard you say it, I went, come on, what's this about? What do you mean by that? Marketing saving the world. That's very, very optimistic and glass half full. Yeah. So I said at the beginning that I really like big, bold statements because they make you think. And I was looking at it this way, or lately I've come to the following conclusion. If you look at the Edelman Trust Report that is published every year about trust in society and how people trust institutions in society, there is a big trust gap in society. We found out in the last couple of years that people don't trust governments anymore, they don't trust media, and they now on average at least that's my recollection from the 2019 and 2020 reports, trust businesses as much as they trust NGOs. And they trust businesses and NGOs a lot more, above 50%. I think it was on average up to the 70%, if I remember correctly, versus government and media being below the 50% for the general public. And there is also a distinction that they made between competence and ethical. And they basically realized that in the perception of people, governments are seen ethical but incompetent, and media seems more competent but unethical, and businesses um, are uh, uh, competent but not ethical, and NGOs are ethical but not competent, or something like that. Which means there is no institution in society that is both ethical and competent in the perception of people. And as said, again, people don't trust governments and 
and media anymore, and they trust businesses more than they do governments and media. One more finding in that was that people trust their employers more than any other institution. So being mm. in a company, you trust your employer more than other businesses, more than NGOs, more than governments, more than media. There is a trust gap in society and it needs to be filled because it will be filled with demagogues otherwise. And we can see that type of development happening through the division that is fostered by social media and tribalism through, through all of what's happening there. Now, that's one type of development that we see. Which is a cheeky quip. That's an ad-funded medium, just for the record, advertisers funder it. But we won't go there. That's a way big rabbit hole. But I had to get it in there, Alex. It's, Keep it's, going. Sorry. Yeah, it's, a, it's a big one that we can spend another hour on. But So that's one part of the development. The other development is that we see this big drive towards AI, robotics, automation, which will delete a lot of jobs, will also create a lot of new jobs, but really change the job world as we know it. I spoke about the fact that the human traits are much more important to carve out for humanity to have a reason to exist and to function. And those traits are captured when you look at it purely from a, a field of expertise point of view by sociology, psychology, philosophy, and all those traits that traditionally are much more represented by marketeers in the C-suite than any other C-suite function. Now, if you combine that right. with the fact that there is a trust gap in society and people trust their employers more than any other institution and businesses more than governments and media, if you connect these two things, you get into a reality that there is a huge responsibility, but also a huge opportunity for marketeers to save the world. And from that statement point of view, there is a lot below that. There are things about internal comms. There are things about progress reports. There are things about being a driving force to keep the human at the forefront of the C-suite in decision-making. There are huge topics around purpose. There are topics about brand. There are topics about storytelling. There are topics about being at the forefront of consumer rights and privacy. There's a whole range of topics that sit under the merit of a chief marketing officer or chief customer officer that represent not only demand, but the human that comes with it and comes traditionally from that field of play that represents the human traits and the human values and the human communication. Again, going back to this, everything is a story and storytelling that makes the marketing leader, the customer leader be in the big driving seat of human development as a whole because of all these points coming together. Well, it's a reasonable argument when you put it that way. I think the next question is, is the capability there from marketers to actually deliver on it? But the conceptual framework, I get it. And yeah, it's a good point. It's just where the marketers can do that, right? And how yes. And the interesting point in context of that, Paul, is I saw a LinkedIn post from Mark Ritson, I think yesterday or two days ago, where the least trusted profession are ad executives. <laughs> For us. Um, so you have here the need... And again, the dichotomy to the conflict of the perception. And this is the territory where growth happens. And I think it is time to speak about these things. And it is a big opportunity and responsibility that our profession has to need to look into in how we put the human first for the sake of our partners, for the sake of our customers, for the sake of our business. Because if we don't put the human first, and it means different things for different contexts, but if we don't put the human first, 
we cannot survive. And when I say human here, I don't mean, of course, putting it first above nature. What I mean with that is representing the unity of what makes us live on this planet, in essence, you know. And again, it's a big topic. There are a lot of things connected to it. It is. It's rich. It's nuanced. It's complex. I'm glad you put it on the radar. And with that, we're going to have to wrap up with your final thoughts, Alex, on some observations and perhaps even some tips for your marketing and CMO peers. What's the biggest point? What would you say to them as you jump on a plane and go to the Rocky Mountains and you know ski and do all those wonderful things in Canada? What would you say to your peers here in marketing and CMOs? I would say... Learn to talk like a CFO. Learn to act like a CPO or CTO, so a chief product officer, a chief technology officer, and always remain the heart and the soul of a CMO. And if you get that combination right, whilst you remain curious and open for learning, all the right things will come to life. Enough said. Great points. Really good conversation, Alex. And as you prepare to depart, stay safe. Look forward to, you know, looping around and catching up. There's some really good thinking there that, you know, it's clear that marketing has to get deeper, richer, more sophisticated, more nuanced and broader in the conversations, debates we have as an industry. And you've done that. So thank you. Stay safe. Enjoy the skiing and enjoy that. We'll be tracking this new oldest startup in the world and what you're up to. Stay safe, Alex. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much, Paul. And uh, wonderful being here again. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.